Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we move on to the next stage of the history of both Byzantium and the Crusades and what an amazing story it is. I've called it the Second Age of the Crusaders and we'll find out how the Crusader states managed to survive for another hundred years after Saladin so nearly destroyed them in the 1180s. And we'll cover some really unexpected aspects of the later Crusader history. One is how the great empire of the Mongols, created by Genghis Khan, invaded the Middle East and turned everything upside down, indeed offering hope to the Crusaders that they found a new ally in the Mongols. And another is what I think was one of the greatest tragedies in history, the destruction of Byzantium by the Fourth Crusade in 1204. Yes, you heard that right. The Fourth Crusade ended up attacking and sacking Christian Constantinople, the last city in the world that had survived intact from the ancient Roman world. So the Crusaders ended up doing the exact opposite of the main purpose of the First Crusade, which had been to save Byzantium. But we're a long way from all of that, since in this first episode, we'll start where we left off. The Third Crusade is over. Richard the Lionheart has left the Holy Land after saving the Crusader states, but failing to recapture Jerusalem. And now we turn to the next great event that will shape the future of not just the Crusader states, but the whole of Islam, the death of Saladin. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. The Third Crusade had come to a close. Never again would such a galaxy of princes go eastward for a holy war. Yet, though all Western Europe had combined in the great effort, the results were mixed. Tyre had been saved by Conrad before the Third Crusade had arrived, and Tripoli by the Sicilian fleet. Acre and the coastline down to Jaffa were all that the Crusaders had contributed to the rebirth of the Crusader kingdom. Apart from the island of Cyprus, Filch from its Byzantine lord. One thing, however, had been achieved. Saladin's career of conquest had been checked. The Muslims were exhausted by the long war. They would not try again for a long time to drive the Christians back into the sea. The Crusader kingdom had indeed been reborn, firmly enough to last for another century, but it was a very small kingdom. And though its kings were in name, kings of Jerusalem, Jerusalem lay out of their grasp. All that they owned was a strip of land never as much as 10 miles wide, stretching for 90 miles by the sea from Jaffa to Tyre. Further north, Bohemond's judicious neutrality had preserved for him Antioch, and a little land around it down to the port of St. Simeon, while his son retained Tripoli itself, and the hospital held Crac des Chevaliers and the Templars Tortosa. It was not much to have salvaged from the wreck of the Crusader East, but for the moment it was safe. For Saladin although he was only 54, was tired and ill after all the struggles of the war. He stayed on at Jerusalem until he heard that Richard the Lionheart had set sail from Acre, busying himself over the civil administration for the province of Palestine. He hoped then to revisit Egypt and afterwards to fulfil his pious ambition of a pilgrimage to Mecca. But duty called him to Damascus after touring for three weeks through the lands that he conquered and meeting 
Beaumont at Beirut to sign a definite peace treaty with him, he arrived at Damascus on the 4th of November. There was a pile of work awaiting him there, an accumulation that had mounted during his four years of life with the army. It was also a severe winter, and with so much to be done in the capital, he put off his journey to Egypt and his pilgrimage. When he had time to spare, he would listen to the debates of men learned in philosophy, and sometimes he would go hunting. But as the winter months went on, those that knew him best saw that his health was failing. He complained of utter weariness and forgetfulness. He could scarcely make the effort to hold audiences. On Friday the 19th of February 1193, he braced himself to ride out to meet the pilgrimage coming home from Mecca. That evening he complained of fever and pain. He bore his sickness patiently and calmly, knowing well that the end was coming. On the 1st of March he fell into a stupor. His son, al-Afdal hurried off to secure the allegiance of the emirs and only the Qadi of Damascus and a few faithful servants stayed by the sultan's bedside. On Wednesday the 3rd, as the Qadi was repeating the words of the Quran over him and came to the passage, There is no God but he, in him do I trust. The dying man opened his eyes and smiled and went in peace to his lord. Of all the great figures of the crusading era, Saladin is the most attractive. He had his faults in his rise to power. He showed a cunning and a ruthlessness that fitted ill with his later reputation. In the interests of policy, he never shrank from bloodshed. He slew Reynald of Chatillon, whom he hated with his own hand. But when he was severe, it was for the sake of his people and his faith. He was a devout Muslim. However kindly he felt towards his Christian friends, he knew that their souls were doomed to perdition. Yet he respected their ways and thought of them as fellow men. Unlike the crusader leaders, he never broke his word when it was pledged to anyone, whatever his religion. For all his fervour, he was always courteous and generous, merciful as a conqueror and a judge, as a master considerate and tolerant. Though some of his emirs might resent him as a Kurdish upstart and though preachers in the West might call him Antichrist, there were very few of his subjects that did not feel for him respect and devotion, and few of his enemies could withhold admiration from him. In person, he was slight of build. His face was melancholy in repose, but would readily light up with a charming smile. His manner was always gentle. His tastes were simple. He disliked coarseness and ostentation. He loved the open air and the chase, but he was also well-read and delighted in intellectual discussion, though he held free thinking in horror. In spite of his power and his victories, he was a quiet, modest man. Many years later, a legend reached the ears of the Frankish writer Vincent of Beauvais that when he lay dying, he summoned his standard-bearer and bade him go round Damascus with a rag from his shroud set upon a lance, calling out that the monarch of all the East could take nothing with him to the tomb save this cloth. His achievements had been great. He had completed the work of Nur ad-Din in uniting Islam, and he'd driven the Western Crusaders out of the holy city down to a narrow strip of coast. But he'd been unable 
to expel them altogether. King Richard the Lionheart and the forces of the Third Crusade had been too much for him. Had he been followed by another ruler of his calibre, the small remaining task might soon have been done, but the tragedy for medieval Islam was its lack of permanent institutions to carry on authority after a leader's death. The caliphate was the only institution to have an existence transcending that of its holders, and the caliph was now politically impotent. Nor was Saladin the caliph. He was only a Kurd of no great family who commanded the obedience of the Muslim world only by the force of his personality. His own sons lacked that personality. At the time of his death, Saladin had 17 sons and one little daughter. The eldest of them was Al-Afdal, an arrogant young man of 22, who'd been designed by his father to inherit Damascus and the headship of the Ayyubite family. While Saladin was dying, Al-Afdal had summoned all the emirs at Damascus to swear allegiance to him and to promise to divorce their wives and disinherit their children if they ever broke that oath. The last clause shocked many of them, and others would not swear unless Al-Afdal in turn swore to maintain them in their fiefs. But when his father died and was buried in the great mosque of the Omeyyads, his authority in Damascus was accepted. His next brother, Al-Aziz, was already governor of Egypt at the age of 21 and proclaimed himself there as independent sultan. A third, as Zahir, ruled in Aleppo and showed no willingness to admit his brother as overlord. Another, Kidra, younger still, held the Haran but acknowledged Al-Afdal's leadership. Only two of Saladin's brothers survived, Togtekin, who had succeeded Turan Shah as lord of the Yemen, and Al-Adil, whose ambition Saladin had come to mistrust. He had the former Frankish lord of Outre-Jordain as his fief and lands in the Jazeera around Edessa. Nephews and cousins possessed lesser fiefs throughout the Sultan's dominions. Princes of the House of Zengi, Izeddin and Imadeddin held Mosul and Sinjar as vassals, and the Autokid Turks were still established at Mardin and Kaifa. Of the other feudal lords, most of them were successful generals whom Saladin had employed, and the most prominent of them was Bektumir, Lord of Aklat. On Saladin's death, the unity of Islam began to crumble. While his sons watched each other jealously, a plot was hatched in the northeast to restore Zengid rule in the person of Izeddin with the support of Bektumur and the Autokid Turks. The Ayubites were saved by the precautions of Al-Adil and by the sudden death of both Izeddin and Bektumur, in which his agents were thought to have had a hand. Izeddin's son and heir, Nureddin Arslan, and Bektumur's successor, Aksan took note of this lesson and for the time being were deferential to Al-Adil. Further south, Al-Afdal soon quarrelled with Al-Aziz. The former had unwisely dismissed most of his father's ministers and had given his entire trust to Azir. 
the brother of the historian Ibn al-Atir, while he himself spent his days and nights enjoying the pleasures of music and wine. The ex-ministers fled to Cairo to Al-Aziz, who was delighted to welcome them. On their advice, Al-Aziz invaded Syria in May 1194 and reached the walls of Damascus. Al-Afdal appealed in terror to his uncle Al-Adil, who came in force down from the Jazeera and interviewed Al-Aziz in his camp. A new family arrangement was then made. But fighting continued between Saladin's sons for most of the next decade, and it wasn't until 1201 that Saladin's brother Al-Adil emerged triumphant as the master of all of Saladin's empire and himself took the title of sultan. The unity of Islam was thereby restored. Meanwhile, with the Crusaders, the family squabbles between Saladin's sons had prevented the Muslims from taking the offensive against the renaissance Crusader kingdom and had therefore proved to be very fortunate. Henry of Champagne, who was the heir apparent to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, had also slowly been able to restore some order. It was not an easy task, nor was Henry's position entirely secure for some reason that cannot now be explained. He was never crowned king. He may have waited in the fond hope of someday recovering Jerusalem. He may have found public opinion unwilling to accept his royal title, or he may have found the church uncooperative. We will never know the answer. But his standing was improved by the death of his main rival, King Guy, who was in Cyprus in May 1194. His elimination left Henry secure. Guy had bequeathed his authority in Cyprus to his eldest brother, Geoffrey. But Geoffrey had returned to France and the Franks in Cyprus had no hesitation in summoning Amalric from Jaffa to take his place. Henry at first demanded as representative of the kings of Jerusalem to be consulted about the succession, but he couldn't implement his claim, and both he and Amalric soon saw that they had to work together. The constable of Cyprus, Baldwin, formerly Lord of Bayes, came to Acre and induced Henry both to recognise Amalric and to offer to visit him in Cyprus. Their interview was very friendly and they planned a close alliance, binding it with the betrothal of Amalric's three young sons to Henry's wife, Queen Isabella's three young daughters. This arrangement was badly needed, for if the Frankish possession of Cyprus was to benefit the Franks in Palestine and provide them with a secure base, the two kingdoms must cooperate. There was a continuous temptation not only for immigrants from the west to settle in the island of Cyprus rather than in the small remnant of the Crusader kingdom, but also for the Crusader knights themselves in Palestine to cross over the narrow sea to Cyprus. Henry knew only too well that if the Cypriot knights were willing to come over the sea to fight for the cross whenever danger approached, then Cyprus would indeed be an asset to him. But equally, if there were misunderstandings, it might well become a dangerously destabilising force. Amalric, friendly though he was, wasn't prepared to be subservient to Henry. Indeed, he'd already sought for himself the title of king in order to define clearly to his subjects and colonists as well as to foreign powers the nature of his authority in Cyprus. But he felt in need of some higher sanction and it must have been the past history of the kings of Jerusalem that made him unwilling to apply to the Pope for his crown and the Byzantine emperor certainly would never give it to him. So, unhappily for Henry, 
Mary he sent to the Western Emperor Henry VI. The emperor was planning a crusade and a client king in the east suited him quite well. Therefore, in 1197, Henry crowned him king of Cyprus and made him his subject under the feudal practices of the time. This was bad news for Henry, who now had no real control over Cyprus. But worse was to come with the principality of Antioch, which had stayed neutral during the war with Saladin under its ruler Bohemond III. But Bohemond had been overthrown by an Armenian lord called Leo, and in 1194, Henry of Champagne decided to intervene and march north towards Antioch. As he moved northwards, he was met by an embassy from the powerful religious group called the Assassins. Their leader, the old man of the mountains, Sinon, had recently died, and his successor was anxious to revive the French that had previously existed between the assassins and the crusaders. He sent apologies for the murder of Conrad of Montferrat, a crime that Henry found easy to forgive since Conrad had been his rival, and he invited Henry to visit his castle at Al-Kaif. There, on a rugged crest in the Nazari Mountains, Henry was offered sumptuous entertainment. He was shown, until he begged that the demonstration should stop, how willingly the followers of the assassins would kill themselves at their sheikh's orders. He left laden with costly gifts and the assassins' friendly promise to assassinate any of his enemies whom he might name. From Al-Kaif, Henry marched up the coast to Antioch, where he barely paused before continuing his journey into Armenia. Leo, unwilling to face an open war, met him before Cis, ready to negotiate a settlement. It was agreed that Beaumont should be released without any ransom and to seal the treaty, and ultimately it was hoped to unite the principalities. Beaumont's heir Raymond was to marry Leo's niece Alice. Henry returned southward with his prestige greatly enhanced, but Leo's ambitions weren't, however, fully satisfied. Knowing that Amalric of Cyprus was seeking a royal crown, he followed his example, but legal opinion at the time considered that a crown could only be granted by an emperor, or according to the Franks, by the Pope. Byzantium, cut off now from Cilicia and Syria by the Seljuks, was no longer strong enough for its titles to carry weight with the Franks, whom Leo wished to impress. He therefore sent to the Western Emperor Henry VI. At first Henry prevaricated he hoped to come soon to the east, and then he would look into the Armenian question, but eventually he promised a crown to Leo in exchange for his control over Armenia. The actual coronation would take place on his arrival, but Henry died before this could happen, and in January 1198, soon after his death, his Chancellor, Conrad of Hildesheim, came to Armenia with the papal legate Conrad Archbishop of Mainz. The Byzantine Emperor, Alexius Angelus, hoping to retain some influence in Armenia, had a few months previously sent Leo a royal crown, which was also gratefully received. The Orthodox Archbishop of Tarsus, the Jacobite Patriarch, and ambassadors from the Muslim Caliph all assisted at the coronation, as well as many of the nobility from Antioch. 
and Leo could claim that his title was recognised by all his subjects and neighbours. It was a great day for the Armenians who saw in it a revival of the ancient kingdom of Armenia, but much more important was Henry's interest in a new crusade, a crusade that this time would be led by the Germans. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave any ratings or reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, you'd be doing me a really massive favour. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what happened to the German crusade. <laughs>